And also, I meant to mention earlier, I'll record a like an intro after the fact, so I'm not going to sit here and introduce you in front of you right now. And I hate those introductions. In. Well, you know, I'm meeting on Thursday, and mm -hmm. I want the poets to introduce themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, then when you go to these readings, they do these elaborate, like they have somebody sort of getting their creative rocks off by writing these elaborate, pretentious, <laughs> uh, hyperbolic peons to the poet. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So boring. <laughs> but that that was kind of how we met though, remember? That's true. But you cuz you had invited me to introduce you at an introduction. That's right. They for wanted the somebody they wanted yeah. me to be introduced and and I suggested you. I'll try to keep this simple. You are listening to the Screen Slate Podcast. I'm your host, John Derringer. And on this episode, I am thrilled to speak with the author, musician, and quintessential New Yorker, Richard Hell, about his new collection of poetry, What Just Happened. We recorded this episode on a very hot day in July in Hell's East Village apartment, where he's lived since 1974. Around that time, he moved here with his friend Tom Verlaine to become a poet, and soon they co-founded the band Television, before Hell left to start The Voidoids. On this episode, we talk about the downtown poetry scene, writing his new book during lockdown, and of course we get into film discussing Hell's one and only steady day job at Terry Ork's Cinemabilia Bookstore, which played a key role in the development of punk, plus working with filmmakers like Susan Seidelman and Nick Zed, and what he's been watching lately. This episode drop is time to coincide with a reading that Hell is giving at Powerhouse in Dumbo on Thursday, October 26th. Admission is free, and an RSVP link is in the episode description. We also have a link to order the book, and it's available through all major online retailers or at an independent bookstore near you. Last thing, Richard Hell is a longtime friend and supporter of ScreenSlate, and it's thanks to people like him that we're able to keep going. If you're not familiar with us, we're sort of like the local alternative film section for New York City and recently the SF Bay, and it's all run as a labor of love by a dedicated group of friends. Member support covers the costs of running our listings platform, paying honorariate writers and editors, and is essential to keep us going. So visit patreon.com slash screenslate to join. Do you remember what kind of correspondence we had? I don't. Like, yeah, um, yeah. Prior was, to that, you know, because I was, I was in, introducing Devil The Devil Probably, probably at, BAM, at BAM, yeah. yeah. Well, I had reached out to you about showing The Devil Probably at Spectacle. Because I knew the essay you'd written. And I had only done one screening at Spectacle before, which was um, in, I think, June 2011. It was films with songs by the band Can, like the oh, German. Oh, Can. Oh, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. And I know you mentioned it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, I had reached out to all the band members and they were super, um, super cool about talking to me. And Malcolm Mooney came out to the screenings and I was like, wow, like, who could I? Who could I reach out to next? Like, how did uh, like you know? I never expected any of them to respond to me, so I was like, "What? What about Richard Hell?" Uh, and uh, yeah, I knew the essay you'd written about the devil, probably. So I asked you if you wanted to come out and introduce it at our basically bootleg screening at Spectacle, and you very politely declined. But that basically started our correspondence so then was when that you, how i first learned about screenslate i think so yeah yeah and you yeah. only started it that year right i mean just like maybe a couple a, months before yeah yeah, yeah. yeah only been a couple of months yeah, yeah. uh but then as soon as i saw screenslate i was a believer 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I was yeah. So uh, yeah, I'll set the scene for our listeners. We are we are in Richard Hell's apartment where you've lived since 1974. Yeah, or five. Uh, I used to think it was 75, but my friend corrected me. It was 74, yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Things get pretty complicated back then. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should start out by talking about the new book. It's called What Just Happened. And this is your first collection of poetry in decades. Is that correct? Well, I mean, I think of it as being my first collection of poetry. It's the first full-scale book of recent poems that I've done in my whole life. I came to New York when I just turned 17, the hope of becoming a poet. Mm -hmm. I spent the next four or five years immersed in that effort. I edited and published a literary magazine. And I was writing poems and getting them published in pretty you know, widely read places. But I didn't really feel like I'd arrived as a poet, that I really figured out what I was doing and what I wanted to do. Um, I was really young, and I don't disavow everything I published or wrote back then, but I didn't really... I mean, to me, a poet is a person who's to whom it comes naturally. That mm -hmm. they, they look at the world through the lens of their awareness of identity as a poet, and they, they work all the time, and they've arrived at a certain approach to writing poetry that fulfills their full intention. And I'd never got there. I was, I was, I was still experimenting and still pushing myself to find how to make it work up into my, you know, up till I hit 20, 21. There was actually one book that I felt really glad about and proud of, but it was a collaboration. It was the book that I wrote with Tom Verlaine. It was published under the name Teresa Stern, right. without it acknowledging anywhere in the book that it was actually written by the pair of us. In the, in the author photo was a composite of you two. You both dressed up, uh, you both wore like wig the same and wig makeup, and makeup yeah. and, and framed it in the same way and you sort of developed it together. Show. Yeah. Yeah. And pretty, pretty decent looking. You yeah, know. yeah, I do. <laughs> no, but very uh, imposing anyway uh -huh. like, uh, <laughs> for me you know because i was trying a lot of things back then I mean, well there was another book the one uh called uh uh by ernie stomach i arrived at this concept this idea this ambition of having multiple identities as a poet mm -hmm. there was ernie stomach who published that book yeah and, uh, and you also just a, recently, this was yeah, just there was, recently was there was a right? in, yeah improved facsimile edition. Mm -hmm. It's like facsimile, but um, I was able to do it more in in a way that more closely fulfilled my my original aims with it because mm -hmm. uh, it had to do with making these graphical works that are much easier to do on computer than what I had to use back then, which was like a felt tip pen and and an exacto knife and anyway um so I, I i still like that book um and teresa was another one i tom and i had been writing collaborations where we just stay up late at night drinking beer and handing the typewriter back and forth yeah which was really fun and the poems were interesting i thought and pretty soon they started seeming to have their own life to me but, mm -hmm. Um, that they were different from what either of us wrote separately, and that but they were consistent with themselves. And you were you well, you were saying a moment ago that poetry didn't really come easy to you necessarily. But would you say that 
expected, like that collaboration or that spirit of kind of passing the typewriter back and forth? I'm not saying that it didn't come easy. I just hadn't found my way yet. You mm-hmm. know, it took a lot of uh, experimenting and I had no education. Uh, I was a high school dropout. Um, I didn't want to participate in some kind of program for writing poetry. I didn't want somebody imposing their concepts on me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was trying to figure out how to do it well. And I didn't feel like I finally got there, except that I kind of did it with Teresa. Uh, but I was frustrated also because who gives a damn about poetry? And I wanted to, you know, make an impression. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and um, as much as I love poetry, I understood that it was a very specialized Yeah. Uh, you know, cultivated taste. So when I had on the idea of starting a rock and roll band, I moved on from poetry. Yeah, yeah. You know, just at the point where I kind of found a way to do it, I quit. Yeah. And you, I mean, there, there was a really interesting but scene the of way, poetry. Sorry to interrupt, but yeah, we started on this because you asked me about the new book, yeah. and I was explaining that I'd never had a book of poetry before. Yeah. And I haven't. It's my first book of so new this poems. So this, this is, is your, like 50 years later, I've become a poet. I never, uh, that made me really happy. Yeah. And, and so these are mostly written recently. They're all written recently. Yeah. Most of them During in the pandemic. Yeah. And what made you return to writing poetry? It just, did it, you feel like it just kind of clicked back into place? Or? Um, well, it was really clear how it came about, which is that, First of all, I always wanted to be a poet, as I keep repeating. And in lockdown, I had nothing else to do. Mm-hmm. I had no other responsibilities or obligations. Every writer would tell you, like, what, not every writer, but 99% of them would tell you what torture it is to be faced with a blank page. And I think it, for me, it was especially that way for poetry because you're, you're just completely exposed. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you, I mean, that's the whole point of it is that you're, you've got to not censor yourself. I mean, yeah. or I don't, I don't know, censor is not even the right kind of line of thought, but you just have to be one big open nerve to write poetry well, in, in, to my mind. And that's really uncomfortable. Uh-huh. <laughs> that condition of being one big open nerve. Yeah. And I mean, during, during the, Lockdown, were you pretty much here the entire time? Or yeah, did you I get was out right where you're sitting. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, you, so and there's the a lot of windows really in the book, I realized later, and that's because there's that window. You know? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it was either write a poem or be bored to death. Yeah. Um, and did you so also... I'd rather die in the poem than die of boredom, you know? <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And did you establish a routine during that time? I mean, to me, my life fell completely out of routine and has never recovered. But I'm curious if you had really you're saying that your life had, had was pretty highly scheduled before, and then well, the, had, all I that had, went to chaos, <laughs> and and you haven't returned. I mean, I had a nine to five that I had to get up and shower and right. go to work, and then I had to you know send screen slate in the morning before I left and. Uh, nothing has been the same since uh, whenever that was. Yeah, February right? 2020. So you're it's no nine to five anymore. And I mean, or well, I, you don't I mean, have I'm any like kind of remote. Yeah, just no, to, no yeah. employment. Like you get no well, paycheck. I, I mean, I I'm employed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're employed, but yeah, you're yeah. like kind of. It's like you're. It's like kind of like freelancing. 
but yeah. it's, yeah, it's yeah. actually you work for um uh what you can't you can't dox me on the <laughs> on the podcast uh, i work know, for you Lockheed want to reveal where you're working is that what you're saying uh, yeah yeah okay <laughs> oh yeah but it, it is kind of like freelancing like you do this you it's work from home and it's informal it's not there's no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. you have deadlines yeah yeah totally yeah, yeah. And, you know, as, I think as many writers do try to, you know, kind of finesse them right. a little bit. But uh, I'm really good with deadlines. I'm always on time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. It comes from being point. a junkie for 10 years and I'm still like overcompensating. Really? <laughs> yeah. So you I think, mean, I, was there like I, a, after I cleaned up, I, you know, I had had I'd, I'd been so useless for so long. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, I wanted to. I was determined to meet all my obligations and responsibilities. Yeah, yeah. So. It's interesting. I mean, would you say there was like uh, any kind of structure or control to that period of addiction, though? Like in terms of... None. Okay. <laughs> I so mean, I was a musician, and I, I didn't really miss dates. Maybe, I don't think... Maybe there was one. There was one nasty period at the very end where we were in the studio and I just didn't show up for a week. Yeah. Um, Wait, is this Destiny? Destiny, Destiny Street. Street. Yeah. Um, but I don't think I ever missed a gig. But yeah, I mean, uh, I'd be late. I would, and my work suffered. Really. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really reliable, you know? Uh, anyway, so yeah. yeah, I think. So you feel you're, you're atoning for that? I think it yeah, hasn't gone away that ever since I cleaned up in the mid 80s, you know, I've been so conscientious about completely carrying out anything I, uh, to the letter, any agreement I make. Mm -hmm. And so did you impose uh, a schedule or a structure on your on your lockdown time in terms of writing? None. Like no, I, I was tuned in to being receptive to any kind of inkling of a poem. Um, emerging mm -hmm. uh but i didn't do it on a schedule but, yeah but the, i'm really happy with how the book came out i mean it was i you know it, it just it made me really grateful that i'd lived this long so that, that i could end up having a book of poems is my probably the most important thing in my life yeah. Me, yeah arriving at being a poet but it seems that um i mean when you first arrived here in new york you were really enmeshed in the scene here i mean maybe you don't feel that way but from reading you know, your memoir, the people you were around and the people you were reading and spending time with. Feels like you were living a poet's life at that time, but... It was everything to me, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, but I, I didn't hit that point that I described earlier where, yeah. where it flowed, mm -hmm. you know. It was always me trying and experimenting. What happened during the pandemic was I found a way to write poems that met all my criteria for what makes a good poem. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a lot of things about those poems and, and how I wrote them and technically how they're arranged that was new to me as a writer. I mm -hmm. didn't, it wasn't something that I really uh, struggled with. Mm -hmm. it, um, but I was, I, I found a form somehow. I don't, it just, I'm, it, it came from being preoccupied with poetry for my whole lifetime and somehow it just fell into place that yeah i'd arrived at the point where i could write them it using techniques that as if they arose organically from the poem itself without me like having to 
experiment and struggle and do a lot of trial and error. It just happened. Well, let's go. I mean, let's go back maybe to the this early time because you were working in a series, uh, like a string of used bookstores, among other jobs. You ended up at a place that I think you know would be of particular interest to our listeners, which is the Cinemabilia store. Yeah, I mean, when I first came to New York, I had like thirty jobs in four years. You know, um, all the typical stuff that you used to see in all the fifties novelist books. Yeah, on the back cover. You, you were know, like he uh, was a stevedore and a, <laughs> and a door-to-door um, grave digger. Uh, or... Grave digger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I did all that. I was, I did actually work as a longshoreman. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm loading ships down the docks. I worked in the post office for like three weeks. That was so tedious. Yeah. But yeah, I finally, after two or three years, hit on bookstores. And I ended up working five or six of them. Um, and the final one was Cinemabilia. And it was also by far the place I stayed at the longest. Because yeah. that was another thing about those days is that for us, for me, and for others I knew, I would only work for as long as it took me to save up enough to live for maybe a month mm-hmm. without working, and then yeah. I'd quit. So, and then I'd live that, and live on, you know, there were times I would live on bread and manners. I mean, mm-hmm. I, just, I didn't want to work if I could <laughs> possibly avoid <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. And you were also kind of like riding out the eviction process a little bit as well, right? Yeah, it worked the same way um, as as the jobs. Uh, as a rule, I, you know, I'd pay rent for a couple of months and then stop paying rent. <laughs> <laughs> and generally, you could last about three months before they, you'd actually get evicted. Yeah, yeah. But there were enough apartments that, and, and they didn't yeah. have, like, the internet then where there could be some kind of landlord's blacklist or something. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. They um, didn't ask for, like, your credit <laughs> score and yeah. two years of tax returns. Yeah. and Yeah, none of that. Yeah, I mean, not only are apartments not abundant, but there's this whole... Cra- you feel like a criminal when you I apply know, for an I apartment. I couldn't believe what I'd come to. Because, you know, Catherine was looking for an apartment, like, four or five years ago. And, yeah. God, were you, were you, how you had... Yeah, it just makes me. It's like the seller's market bad. now. Then it was the buyer's market. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there were just tons of apartments because New York w- was like a shanty town. Yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, uh, 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 people were fleeing New York. They um, mm-hmm. and landlords were born down buildings because they weren't enough tenants to fill them up. Right, and they, and they like could an collect the insurance money instead. Scheme. Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, you know. East of here in Alphabet City, a whole block should be burned out. Yeah. Yeah. And what made you stick with this place? Because it had everything I need. You know, um, it's very inexpensive, rent stabilized. It's very quiet. It's in the back of the building. It's very full of light. It has Mm -hmm. two bedrooms. Um, Why wouldn't I stay? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it just seemed like you you had this history of just like, you know, kind of cycling through and well, pretty rapidly. Well, I was also and... very lucky in another way about this apartment, yeah. which is that when I first got it, for like the first 10 or 15 years I was here, it was run by two gradually senescent East European immigrants. Oh, okay. I think you told me about this yeah. before. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they were losing their minds. And, they, and you could go for months without paying rent. <laughs> it also meant... You would have no heat for, you know, half the winter and there was no maintenance and, you know, you'd get robbed. But 
Yeah. Um, and who likes to move? I mean, anyway. I hate it. Yeah, it's the worst. way too many times. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they just sort of developed that way. You know? Yeah, yeah. Did you write about you had a neighbor here? You said you had kind of like a system between your windows to kind of pass back and forth. It was across uh, there, like there's catty corner to that to the window in my office space. There, um, there's a window that's just like in the next building, mm-hmm. like five feet away. Yeah, he was on the methadone program, and he'd have a spare bottle every week. Mm-hmm. And yeah, rather than um, go downstairs and meet him on the street, I had this like broom handle with a that I rubber band a paper bag to and yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. push it through the window and he'd fill it up and yeah back. Yep. I like how you uh I think in your book you describe yourself as being sort of like Gene Kelly and an American in Paris or something like a sort I would of never be Gene Kelly. I would be Fred Astaire. Oh Fred Astaire. My mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess, you know, speaking of, you know, we were talking about cinemabilia, which you know, so I guess that, that that's yeah. been your longest running Yeah, that was the last job I had. Real job. Uh, yeah. the last day job I had. And it was really congenial, you know. I mean mm-hmm. it was um I got along great with the owner and uh there were, it was so much fun learning everything I got to learn about movies and hanging out with other cinephiles and yeah, and would you have identified yourself as a cinephile before then? No, I mean, I think everybody loved movies. I didn't study them or uh, dwell on it. I just, you know, I like to go into the movies. And, yeah, um, this sort of like catalyzed your avid interest in right. Um, and back, yeah, you know, I became pretty damn knowledgeable. I mean, I uh, I had a sideline sideline as I mentioned in the book uh, when I was working at Cinemabilia after a few months of writing term papers for students in Andrew Saris's class at Columbia. <laughs> um, for 75 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. Guaranteed, I, I guaranteed feel... B plus or better. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever have to give anyone their, their money back? No. And did you just meet them through the store? Were these people who would come through the store? Like, how would you advertise your services? As I can't remember writer? how the first one happened, but you know, the guy like, who, ra- who was the manager of the store was Terry Ork. Yeah. who ended up, you know, facilitating television, my, yeah. my first band. And he he always just loved subversive. Um, mm-hmm. And so he'd be kind of my agent as, okay. as a term paper writer, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Did he would chat with everybody who came up to the cash register. He ran the cash register. And if he, you know, was able to suss out that this might be a likely person in the market for a term paper. <laughs> uh-huh. So he was kind of your first uh, literary agent. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and you were working, uh, you were working the stills desk? Eventually, yeah, that's what I ended up. Yeah. yeah at first, I, I mean, how, just, did, I how did you end up there in the first place? Um, I'd been at the Strand before that, and I was packing books at the Strand. That was my job at the Strand. I worked in the basement packing books for orders. I didn't have any, like, contact with customers right yeah you weren't like on the floor or yeah anything. and uh i can't remember why i left there but I, I was aware that cinemabilia existed and i also knew that terry who tom and i had encountered I, we didn't really know him but he hung out at max's and so i knew i had a little in there because 
we would recognize each other anyway. Sure. So I thought, oh, why don't I try getting a job there? And yeah. So and I and that's how I started there was packing books too the same way. Yeah. But and and where was that again? Like it was on Thirteenth Street, just east of Fifth Avenue. And then you and you and Tom worked there at the same time, right? Like that no. was the. I worked there first for sure. Okay. Um, I can't remember how much we overlapped. He worked yeah. there for a little while too. You know, Terry, like I said, he was kind of the face of the store. He wasn't, it was owned by this guy named Ernest Burns, who was there every day. And Terry was sort of the public face of Cinemabilia, standing at the uh, catch register. And he he was a serious cinephile, um, mm-hmm. Terry. For instance, he was friendly with Nick Ray. Right. And he brought Nick Ray to the early television rehearsals. Uh-huh. Um, and we got a quote for him from an early for for one of the posters I made. For the day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, four cats with a passion." <laughs> <laughs> and um, how did he? How did he know Nick Ray? Was it just from Nick coming through the store? Because also, was I'm, Nick Ray? I, I'm not sure. You know, that? I mean, he just circulated in you know underground culture, and also film directors and film people are working in film came in there all the time. Yeah. It was a fantastic store. There was a lot of out-of-print stuff, a lot of posters, uh, lobby cards, stills, every new book you can think of that had anything to do with filmmaking and film. Yeah, it was a it was a gold mine. Yeah, for anybody interested in movies. Yeah, are there any other um, customers or guests who who stick out in your mind? Or I wasn't that conscious of that. It was more Terry's turf and. My my time on the stills desk probably was only the last couple of months I was there. The funny thing about working the stills desk is that I I got pretty expert at um, predicting what still somebody would want. Uh huh. Going I by like their uh, <laughs> because it, there was a lot. It was often very sexual. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'd want stills of somebody who they thought was really sexy. So I, I play, kind of played a game with myself of reading who they're going to ask me. Uh-huh. You know, there'd be a feel, lot I mean, of people how, looking how for accurate. like a tab hunter in Rock Hudson, you know? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, is this how you were first exposed to like Godard, for instance? Um, that's hard to say. I mean, there, there's a lot of like sort of B movie people mm-hmm. um, that I learned about Sam Fuller. For instance, though you think of Sam Fuller as being like a B movie, but he, he like for instance, Thelma Ritter got nominated for an Academy Award for Pick Up on South Street. He, he was he was making popular movies. Yeah, were, yeah, yeah. Um, and that would be top of the bill. Um, yeah, they were just very tabloidy, and it was more along those lines. Like, I think I had to have seen Godard because I loved going to the movies, and I would go to the Bleecker Street Cinema. And were you engaging in like the underground scene at all, like Jonas Mikas or Cinema Sixteen? Or I'm trying to think when Cinema Sixteen was around. I did go to Anthology when it was in the public theater building. Um, Okay, and it had these seats that were unique. Oh, like the invisible hoods over your over you, like it was just you and the screen. They had these like hoods so that. Uh, you were separated from the rest of the audience and it was just you in the movie, like a peep show or something. Do you remember what you saw there? No. Yeah. And you had also uh, started acting while you were... Well, I never, (laughs) you know, I was always scrambling for money and I would get these offers, so I would take them if they would pay me. 
you know, yeah. I never solicited anything. Yeah. I but I, I, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to like butter you up, but I, I do feel like you're kind of the best part of a lot of the films you're in or, I or maybe that sounds like faint praise. Maybe that does sound like faint praise for some of them, but, um, I, no, I mean, like Smithereens. It's a pretty bad movie. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, you, it's I mean, not the, saying a lot. Yeah. But, um, I think it's funny. Yeah. The the first one you did, though, was with uh, Uli Lamel. The, that wasn't the first one. Oh, it wasn't? Okay. No. I've been in Rashid Kadush's movie before that, Honorable Award. That's how I met Cookie Mueller. Okay. Um, and what else? Um, and Nick said. When was that? Geek Maggot being This is probably a little bit later. <laughs> 80s, yeah. And I mean, uh, there's uh, What About Me by Virgil oh, yeah. Amadeo, which That's also later. has Nick Zed in it. That's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I have a fondness for that film. I haven't seen it in a while. I think it was actually one of the first movies I saw when I moved to New York. There was a screening of it at uh, Millennium Film Workshop with, Rachel introduced it. Well, as you know, Great Richard Brody is like, it's on Criterion now, movie, <laughs> uh, which I never would have dreamed would happen. Right. Um, well, uh, we were talking about how there's almost like a like a mini retrospective of your work uh, well, within I, there. They just need to add I geek mean, two bingo. Or movies I was in the, the, in the Criterion <laughs> collection blows my mind. It's like, so it reduces my respect for Criterion. I'm, no, you should say uh, it raises your esteem for Criterion and they could raise it even further by, you know, having an entire Richard Hell curated section on the site. Uh, <laughs> Richard Hell introduces... I've done a couple of things for them. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you did like a top 10. Well, I feel yeah. like there's a lot of buzz too around um, What About Me. Like, I, you know, there were a couple critics and, and friends who I talked to who were like, you know, I'd never heard of this film and it was fantastic. Well, that's nice. Yeah, See, yeah. I, I, it you pissed me off. I was pissed it, off about that movie because it had such an interesting cast, and I felt like Rachel didn't really take advantage of that. I mean, we all should have had scenes together. Um, well, so but that's not, like yeah, that wasn't her intention. Rockets, Red Glare. Johnny Thunders. Yeah. Uh, uh, Richard Edson. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Didi Ramone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, maybe, I mean, it was maybe like in a way, it's to the film's credit that it's not trying to like create a spectacle of just having everyone in one scene as a giant party, but trying to like make you work as performers in a. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Well, like, I'm glad for her that whatever like you know attention she can get for the movie and. Um, yeah, but when when was the last time you saw it? Like when it when it was completed or no i i definitely tried to watch it uh since i think when i saw brody promoting it the way he was uh -huh. i took another glance at it yeah uh, rachel's a sweetheart and more power power to her uh but i have this about a lot of things that i've been involved with where mm -hmm. i just i'm always surprised that anybody takes them seriously <laughs> uh-huh yeah yeah <laughs> well maybe i mean Maybe Geek Maggot Bingo is, is an easy one to. <laughs> I mean, what? what I, I told mean, somebody a story about that the other day. Um, do you want to share it with a Screen Slate pod listeners? Sure. <laughs> you know, he Geek Maggot Bingo was Nick Zed's bid for commercial success. Right. That's how we thought of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, the it it's almost feature length. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, it's, it, I mean, it might it, be his longest. Uh, but, you know, yeah. it's the, uh, but it's extremely crude. Uh, sure. In, in more ways than we would yeah. ever want to, like, try to tabulate. Uh-huh. <laughs> So, but he had these big ambitions for it. It was his, like, it was his, his, his uh, hope for, um, you know, hitting the tipping point into uh, general into acceptance. Into commercial success, yeah. yeah. He was it was a, a yeah, it was a, a, bit of a genre yeah. film, a horror movie with a, with a lot of, like, fancy makeup for the monster. That was the biggest uh-huh. investment, I think. Was yeah, yeah. The monster makeup. Uh, I played a cowboy in Transylvania. Anyway... And once it was completed, he rented a screening room to launch the movie on this uh, rocket to stardom. Yeah. He invited all the important movie people, his addresses he could get, Mm -hmm. reviewers, distributors, um, anybody who he thought might be able to help the movie succeed. Yeah. So I went, and I fell asleep almost right away. Uh, <laughs> the place was packed, so people. Yeah, came he out, had like drive, a lot of people, and it, and it wasn't that big a room, maybe a hundred seats. I don't know, but it was packed. Yeah, um, I immediately fell asleep. I guess I woke up maybe fifteen minutes or something, and nobody was left. The oh, room was man. completely empty. That's rough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know where his mind was. How did he meet um, I Zed? think he's like, to me, he's uh, he's much more interesting as an actor. Though he had oh, a moment. Yeah, he's got a great. But yeah, yeah, look, he, yeah he, he was acting in a bunch well. of great underground movies. Sure. By Richard Kern. And, um, uh, my friend yeah, Tommy yeah, Turner. He, he takes, tried to take credit him, yeah. for directing that, or he did try to, that thrust in me. Sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's not, I get them mixed up. I think that's the one she did, right? Wait, t- Tessa. Trust me, the one where he has sex with himself and drag. I don't know if I've seen that one. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. To my yeah, it's brilliant. To my embarrassment. Um, uh, anyway, uh, where did I meet him? You asked. Yeah, yeah. How did he? He asked me to be in a movie. Contact? You know, shortly after he came to New York. I mean, mm-hmm. he 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 definitely a lot of what brought him to New York was reading about bands I was in and. What about Smithereens? I mean, we haven't really talked about that much because, you know, I feel like that's one you've mentioned as having a particular fondness for among the other, you know, acting roles you were doing at the time. What about fondness for it? You know, you, you tend to be a little dismissive of some of the, the acting roles you've had, but that you, you're proud I'm a, of your a work. I'm dismissive of, of all of them. I mean, I'm not an actor and I'm too self-conscious. I'm just not mm-hmm. cut out to be an actor. But I think you mentioned to me there there was one time, uh, some like a couple years ago, you had you had been tempted, uh, perhaps to go back into acting when two comedy filmmakers who you admired had reached out to you. That was after my autobiography um, came out, and the Farrelly brothers really liked my autobiography. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and, you know the. Dumb and Dumber guys. And I thought that was cool. I loved the, those movies. Yeah, yeah. They're, I mean, modern classics. <laughs> yeah. And they wanted me to audition for a role uh-huh. uh, in one of the movies. I can't remember what the name of it was. It got made. And so, yeah, I gave it a shot. I like, yeah. uh, I had my friend film me doing the scene they sent for uh, 
as an audition scene. Okay, yeah, yeah. But they, they didn't. I, I was rejected. Yeah, but it's nice to be thought of. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they uh, they weren't gonna option your your memoirs for their next film. No, that didn't happen. Yeah. No. Has anyone has anyone tried to do that? Yeah, like, or... one. Yeah, there was a that time I can't remember the person was somebody with a track record have people ever like tried to to play you in films has there ever been uh because there was there was like that cbgb film oh that came out? i'm, I'm that sorry to, so to that movie was really horrifying the thing about that movie was that it was put together with um hilly's daughter because she had the estate she she was the person that was overseeing sold the rights and yeah. was the consultant on the movie yeah. um and she knew nothing about any of the bands or what it was like there she wasn't even at the club um yeah. she was just his daughter and she gave them all so it ended up focusing on the bands that uh either got really popular or that uh, or that hilly was financially involved in uh -huh. they, they but it's just a, it's just like it's like ludicrous. It has nothing to do with what the, yeah. the club was like or what any of the bands like were the, like. It's like some weird comedy director. Like, like who is this person and why would they make? Why would someone hire them to make a film about the subject? Yeah, um, it's really. So it's like it's like who did like beneath soul contempt or something. Um, yeah, yeah. Of no interest in any yeah. uh, whatsoever. Yeah. yeah, and I mean there was that show uh, which you wrote about vinyl oh, yeah. as well which had a, a character who's speculated to be uh potentially based on you well he said that the actor said that it was mick jagger's son that was mick jagger's son yes i've already completely erased this show from my mind and all the <laughs> the facts about it yeah other than i remember yeah you it was were, one you of his sons he, he probably has 20 kids yeah yeah he, he's like obviously like a kid machine like, <laughs> yeah i mean more power to him i guess <laughs> you ran a film club uh oh, that, with, <laughs> yeah. i didn't run it friends. i didn't run it i was part of it okay, you we were all part started of the film it club. together um <laughs> collaborative film club with yeah, uh, yeah well i'm sure i mean some of our listeners definitely know like mark McElhatton and gene leota and yeah yeah you're, you're yeah mark McElhatton, conspiracy leota brent kite yeah it was fun. What we would do would, uh, I can't remember if it was once a, once a month or what, but one of us would propose a movie that we all see, um, and then we would meet at one of our houses and talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, sort of like, just like a book club with films. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you were called? The Sons of Hugo Haas. Yes. Named um, after, <laughs> you know, I feel like people don't really know Hugo Haas as No, much. they don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's pretty obscure. But that was actually a way that Bob Quine and I bonded. He's the only person I ever met who knew Hugo Haas movies. Oh, um, really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He loves Hugo Haas too. Do, do you have favorites, or do you remember? It's what been Bob's so long. Were? It was like, um, uh, you know, basically they're all the same. He mm -hmm. he plays a older guy that the young girl loves. <laughs> there's a there's a really cool one though that, uh, wait, there, there's it? a few like really the... cool ones. The one with Billy Bitcher, the mm -hmm. cameraman for uh Chaplin and what all. Yeah. Um yeah. uh plays a role. He's, he's he would do that kind of thing yeah. too. Um and um, um it's been too long though. That was back in you know, in my thirties or whatever that uh 
No, it had to be before that. It had to be some big time I, uh, I discovered him um, when it was really hard to f see anything. By yeah, him. yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, he was a immigre from what Eastern European country. Um, uh, Czechoslovakia. Uh, Czech Republic. Yeah, I came across some reference to him, like in the cultural. Might have been hungry. Uh, I, I can't remember. Yeah, sure. um, but anyway, we call we named ourselves we call ourselves the son, sons of Hugo Haas, and we get together and meet. But then we all we kind of broke up over my obnoxiousness again, <laughs> uh, which is that we one of the movies we did was The Night of the Hunter, uh -huh. um, and I thought it was overrated. <laughs> uh -huh. And when I'm arguing a point, I get very pointed. Yeah, I don't necessarily, you know, get emotional, but I get, I can be really contemptuous. Mm -hmm. It's a bad trait of mine. I don't. I'm not proud yeah. of it. Uh, but um, don't, don't. I like have this like I I like I like go for the jugular. Yeah, um, yeah. And I kept doing that about their. Uh, Love and respect for Night of the Hunter. <laughs> I, I have to I say, really I think, I think it's my favorite favorite but, film. Yeah, <laughs> but but it also had to do. I I referred to the club in something I wrote in The Voice. Uh huh. And they also got offended oh, by yeah, what yeah. I said. You betrayed the sort of sanctity and intimacy of the yeah. sons of Hugo Haas by name checking it in print, and also kind of asserting your authority in a way. Yeah. Uh, to do so. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't thinking it was a bad, bad move. But, but yeah. yeah, it was fun while it lasted. I mean, what what have you been watching lately? What uh, what what films have continued to to inspire you? Um, hey baby, what have I been watching? <laughs> no, actually, I I knew this had to come up, and so I asked Catherine at lunch today, "What have we liked?" Because I should probably yeah. have some movies from the. 20, I, honestly, I'm the same century. way. I can't remember anything. Yeah, well, I, I used yeah. to. I mean, because in the 20th century, um, when I was writing about movies a lot, <clears throat> um, and even a little later, yeah, it was a sort of. Um, was Did a, you keep a diary? It was a hobby or, of mine. I yeah. mean, and I was, <laughs> and and I keep it all straight. But um, yeah, and a lot we of came the, up. We came up with like, like oh okay. Um, Got a handwritten I'm trying list to think here. Like, oh yeah, the the one thing that like, as an odd, unexpected. Um, I mean, I just we put together like a, a list of what we could remember of, from the last twenty years that you know made a strong impression. Yeah. But it's just random, you know. It's twenty out of fifty, um, or ten out of fifty. Um, but the, the one that actually is fairly recent. For me, though it wasn't made that recently, uh, that was a real revelation and actually a literal inspiration in that it gave me ideas um, for my own work. Uh, it's a pretty unlikely documentary called The Iron Ministry. Have you ever heard of it? I that? don't know this, no. It's made by this guy who's kind of an ethnographer. Um, it comes from out of the school, actually... This came from the same group that made that Leviathan movie. 
Oh, the uh, the sensory ethnography yes. lab. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is that Harvard? Yeah, or, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I don't can't know. remember the guy's name. Look up Iron Ministry, because what it is, he spent a, a few years in China, and this movie is just spent on a train going through China, packed with, uh, you know, oh, yeah. anonymous Chinese citizens. J.P. Uh, Sneadecki. Yeah. Does yeah. that name mean anything to you? Yeah, yeah, he's directed a number of. Uh, I saw a couple of others since then. Yeah, they're fantastic. I love sensory them. Ethno- sensory ethnographic films. Right. Uh, right. Yeah, yeah. But parts. it's not just ethnographic, it's how he shoots. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, that was the thing that really struck me and gave me ideas. Yeah, I mean, it's how, a fantastic how did you see it? Did movie. you see it in a theater? Was it on, like, streaming no, somewhere? Just, uh, I can't remember what took me there. You were, you were watching the the Richard Hell films on the Criterion channel and it popped up as <laughs> one of the like recommendations. That. Yeah, yeah. 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 But yeah, that was a great one. Things go like oh. in my mind is like a sieve, especially when it comes to remembering what I've watched. Yeah. And, and I can't even, this has always been true that I can't remember what happened in movies that I saw. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. What I remember about the it movie. It makes me feel like kind of a fraud sometimes <laughs> it, it well it just makes me disappointed in myself for sure that, yeah because uh, it uh it, yeah it makes me feel like does that mean i'm not really paying attention or and it but the way my memory works is that i completely remember my assessment of the movie and mm-hmm. the emotional impact of it. exactly yeah right. yeah i'm the same way yeah yeah but i can't remember what happened or you know I'm, i might not even remember the actors or mm-hmm. um yeah um, but for other movies that were really strong, uh, in the past, Zola movie was amazing. The, the Zola, Zola? The one from the tweets. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> that was spectacular. Yeah. I love that. Um, yeah. Very distinctive, um, approach and the, the actress is great. And, and the backstory is so mind boggling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and it was really something to pull off. The thing uh, you know, the another thing... one that I hadn't known about that I only saw in the last couple of years, but I think was actually made in 2012, is that movie Color Wheel. Oh, yeah. We were yeah. talking about that. Yeah. 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 That Alex. Alex Ross Perry. Perry. Yeah. yeah. Who, is, who has called into the, the pod before. I is think, that right? I think episode one. Yeah. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> they, you, yeah, people call in. Well, I think actually, you know, Peter Bogdanovich had, I think, passed away the day that we were recording it and he had done a screening with him kind of recently so we you know just yeah called him up and sort of had a, a little bit of a peter bogdanovich memorial oh, uh, uh segment but yeah i remember the basic thing that goes on and the road trip and, um yeah that was a great movie tangerine yeah uh there, there was a film actually that's mentioned in your book i don't know if it, this is like a, a, a spoiler of your book, but you yeah. e- <laughs> spoiler alert. But um, uh, you had emailed me about a uh, film by Todd Phillips from uh, a couple oh. years ago. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Joker, yeah, that definitely belongs on any list of mine of you know, yeah, relatively recent movies. That well, I, yeah. I remember you you had sent me your thoughts about it, and you were like, you know, I read this review on Screenslate or something uh, that you know I I didn't like or whatever, and and like I think had forgotten that I had written that. <laughs> 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 
but it's fine. Like, you know, I don't remember that. Part. Yeah, I blocked that out. No, but I, uh, I mean, I I definitely uh, appreciate you know what you wrote. Do do you want to? Do you have any thoughts about Joker that you want to well, share? Well, um, I thought it was a good movie, and that its point of view or the, the attention it was giving to a kind of condition that a human can be in um, was valid and worthwhile and worthy of, of making a, a big film about being, you know, somebody who's completely alienated. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, um, and, uh, and just horror and despair and uh, abject alienation yeah. uh, in, in, as, as their core. And, and the, I thought that, as, as I said when I was talking about it, and I, I, in, in the place where it's mentioned in the book, that it it became especially tender because of the Trump era, uh, mm -hmm. because yeah, the guy's a nihilist. Um, and he he could definitely be realistically described that way. Um, and the first association you have with that word these days is with Trump, and so. Mm -hmm. um, People are super sensitized to that um, kind of, uh, but you know, I mean, I thought it, I, I thought it was as interesting as Taxi Driver in a lot of mm -hmm. ways. I mean, yeah, I mean, including the way it played off the Taxi Driver and King of Comedy, and it was complex and and really well done, and the acting was unbelievable. Yeah, he's. I mean, he is great in it, and I, I you know, I think I think I've come around to it uh, somewhat, and. <laughs> And and I do th I I do feel like your interpretation of the film will be the one that that stands the the test of history. I think I think Joker's place in the the pantheon is <laughs> secure. I feel that way. Yeah. But yeah. Now, once the... I remember I, I asked you if you would if you were familiar with the concept of being Jokerfied. You've never heard of it. Like it's when it, it's basically like being. Um, uh, it's a, it's a state of extreme disillusionment, not unlike uh, that which the the titular Joker uh, experiences. Being Jokerified. So give me an example of what do you, you know. Mean? It's just like because Jokerified means uh, something is done to you. It's not like I a think, state you're in. Well, I think it would be more like like uh, if you think of yourself, for instance, as like a like a leftist or a liberal, and you see these kind of continued traps that like let's say the democratic party falls into or oh. something and you're just like you know what i'm throwing my hands up i'm done with this i'm i'm jokerfied oh, you know okay like, no i never heard you know that. it's like watching you know you you have this maybe hold try to hold on to some hope for the condition of the world improving but it seems like people keep stepping on rakes and you just well you know i think yeah, that extreme that disillusion like it kind yeah, of yeah. It, there there's a and you're yeah, like, there's I'm kind of a pattern of that happening with people, um, just in the normal course of things as they age. Like it's mm -hmm. not unusual to see people who are uh, liberal become con more conservative. Sure, yeah, yeah. Like it, old people are notoriously conservative. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. there was a story in the Times just the other day about uh, are Democrats actually winning back some of the old people because. Uh, it's always that's been a big part of his voting block. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that happens partly because, yeah, you do get. It hasn't happened to me by any means at mm -hmm. all whatsoever. But I can see the sort of mechanism, which is that um, if you have been, um, you know, 
believing in, like, to me, the difference between a Democrat and a Republican, a liberal and a conservative, comes down to Democrats believe in people helping each other. Mm-hmm. Republicans believe it's every man for himself. Or even like um, the past few days with the Supreme Court, and you see, the, you know, what gains have been made sort of being dismantled uh, yeah. and feeling like nothing is secure, no rights you have are secure, no guarant- there, there's no guarantees. Um, yeah, these are all the things that jokerify us. Yeah, uh, you see that nobody's really there helping you. Um, yeah. So you just start thinking, okay, it's me against everybody and fuck them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, and it's like a trap that, you know, it's, you know, can be a struggle not to fall into, but, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, I wonder if you feel like culturally um, that attitude, you know, I think you've talked, and and again, I'm I'm not trying to, like, veer too heavily back into, like, punk, but you've sort of talked about there being a conservative element to that culture, if I'm uh, yeah, where was that where recently where I pointed uh, about, yeah, and, uh, it's in the New Yorker interview, right? Uh, when, when she's talking about uh, what uh, the 70s were like. Okay, yeah. And it was all like, it was every man for himself on the Lower East Side. It was mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. A, it was um, like a frontier town, the Wild West without any marshal. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and... Um, and that, you know, people romanticize it, but it also had this whole dark side. Yeah, know, yeah. Of, just like what I was talking about before. You were going to get mugged or raped. You're going to get burglarized. You, all, all the ways in which that was equally a part of what the world was like for, in 1970s New York. Yeah. Um, and sort of and, that. And, that uh, and, and it's not inconsistent with punk in certain ways. Uh, John Lydon is a Trumpist. Yeah. And that's, that's the anarchy he's talking about. I think people tend to, to hear this like anarchy and sort of like, well, of course, project their I mean, own that's feelings what we all, onto yeah, it. I but, mean, yeah, that know. it was about freedom. It's right. about f- freedom to, to win over everybody else. That's is, the freedom it is. Yeah. Is that a current you had, you had detected at, at the time? Like, let's say when you, you know, were at the time that it was, it was not time. clear, uh, New York, I was a teenager, and this is what New York is like. Yeah, and, and you weren't really thinking in political terms to, necessarily. You know, just, this was the world. You know. But it seems like maybe you, you are feeling some, some hope about the city. Um, Screenslate gives me hope, as, I, <laughs> as you know. Thanks for listening to the Screenslate podcast and to this episode's very special guest, Richard Held. Richard is reading live Thursday, October 27th at Powerhouse in Dumbo. Check the episode description for RSVP link. And you can also find his book, What Just Happened, online and in stores. ScreenSlate is supported by our members. So visit patreon.com slash ScreenSlate to keep us going. You get access to our Discord, bonus episodes, and other perks. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you soon.